Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. I was sitting in Susie's kitchen. This was 1963, August, the first Friday in August. Susie and I were an item. I had just graduated from high school, and uh, I had just turned 18. And Susie and I were talking about the kinds of things that you talk about when you are sweethearts in high school. But I kept getting distracted. There was this sunlight that was sort of trying to sneak through the curtains in the kitchenette. It was all dark in there, and it was cool, and outside it was very, very hot. And we were talking, but I was distracted, and finally I, I had this impulse, and I, I stood up, and I put down my iced tea, and I said, Susie, I gotta go. I didn't know where I had to go or what was going on, but I just had to go, and I left Susie's house and walked out the front door, and the first thing that hit me was the heat of that August afternoon. It was very, very hot, and I felt like I was enveloped by this bubble and sort of thrown into another dimension, and I start walking, and I realize I'm walking home, and I get up to the corner. My house was only a block away, and I turn the corner, and the first thing I see are these magnificent uh, maple trees that overarch the street, and they're in full leaf, and the sun is blasting down through them, and the color is just luscious. It's, it's a, a beautiful color, but everything is very still, and it's very hot. And I notice, not far away, just a, a few hundred yards or less up the street, there are about seven or nine people out in the street, and I recognize them immediately. They're all my neighbors, the Serignanos, the Petrillos, the Horowitzes are out there. And, and suddenly I, I start walking towards them, but I don't feel like I'm under my own volition. I feel in a way like I'm dreaming this or I'm in a movie. And as I'm walking towards them, I can kind of sense in my head, I can hear the sprockets of a projector as this film is going by and I'm getting closer to this, this group of people. And it opens up and I enter into their midst and I see that everybody's looking up at my house. And I look up at my house and then somebody puts a hand on my left shoulder. And then somebody says, Frank, your dad, he's inside. He's very sick. And I said nothing, and the crowd opened up, and I walked up the front steps to my house, and I walked, opened up the screen door. The, the main door was wide open, and I walked into the house. I said, hello. There was nothing but this drone of one of those big, fat, blue bottle flies, this kind of horrible sound, like in the hallway. And so I walk over to the right into the living room. And there, underneath this painting on the wall that my father had commissioned, uh, he had commissioned a, a beatnik artist in Greenwich Village to paint this Parisian street scene. Underneath this was the couch, and on the couch was my father. And over the, my father, was drawn a white sheet from head to toe. 
And I looked at this and I was instantly terrified. I was gripped by the deepest fear I had ever experienced, I think, up to that time. It was the first death I had ever experienced and I, I backed away. He was supposed to be playing golf. It was Friday, he was with his buddies at the golf course. And he felt sick and he said, I'm going home and he went home and he, and he died right there on the couch and I backed away and I was in a state of shock and I backed out of the house and I walked back down to the street and rejoined this group of people and I don't really remember anything from the rest of that day except for a couple of things, two things. I remember when my mother came home and she didn't cry but she was completely distraught and in the process of, of those hours she said, I can't call your sister. You have to call your sister and, and, and tell her to come up. You have to tell her. I didn't want to tell my sister. I didn't want to tell anybody. I, I could hardly believe it myself. I didn't know what to do. How, how do you tell somebody? But I drew on what I had learned from this crowd of people in the street, and I called my sister, and I said, Sis, you got to come up. Dad's really sick. Well, how sick is he? Oh, he's really sick. So she came up the very next day, flew up from Florida up to, uh, up to JFK, and she's getting off the plane at JFK. Those were the days when you could go right down to the gate, you know, and, and you wait for people to come off the plane. And she's walking down, and she sees me, and the instant she sees me, she knows that our dad had died. She bursts into tears. His death really blew everybody away. I didn't know what to say. And all I can say now is, I apologize. I am so sorry. This is like a formal apology to my sister. I didn't have the balls. I didn't know what to say. I was a kid, and I did the best I could. There was something else I could not apologize for, and that is that when I walked out of the house and rejoined that group of people, I realized that it had been three days since I talked to my father. He and I had had a spat. And lots of times when I was a kid, in my teenage years, I'd be in a spat with my parents, and I would get pissy, I would get quiet, I would get sullen, I'd get angry and withdrawn. And my dad, when those times happened, would call me shag nasty. That was his pet name for me when I was like that. Now, I know that the, you know, shag has these other connotations, but I can assure you that this thing between my father and me in those days was, was, had nothing to do with that. He just recognized in me this kind of, kind of shagginess, you know, this darkness, this inability to communicate. And three days earlier, he had said, okay, shag nasty, and that was it. I was shocked. I suddenly realized I can't resolve this conflict. I don't know what the conflict was over the years. I completely forgot whatever had happened. But over all these years, I was never able to resolve the conflict. And even worse, 
it struck me that my dad had died with this vision of me as a shag nasty kid. That was hard. I couldn't redeem myself. He was gone. His death was a powerful thing, to say the least, in the family. My mother was totally distracted. She moved out of the suburbs down into Manhattan to the Upper East Side. I have no idea why she left all of her friends and the neighbors and the people that she knew in, 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 our, in our little town. And she moved to a place where God knows what she was doing or thinking. But in the process of doing so, she also sold the house. So after my first semester of school, I had no home to go to. I didn't, I, there was no home to go back to. So I didn't have a home, I didn't have a father, I, I didn't have a guide, a mentor. I didn't have a confidant, he was gone. And for my sister, I believe that she had lost the first man who had unconditionally loved her, he adored her. This was a bond that, that, was, that was broken. He was a great guy, he was a, a Valentine's baby, born February 14th, and he exuded all those qualities. He was loving, he was a hugger and a kisser, and he was warm and fuzzy, and he was funny, and he was the life of the party, and he had friends, and he loved to be with friends. He used to take me up on the, the school grounds and throw pop flies and grounders, and, and he took me up to Bear Mountain, and it was the first mountain I ever climbed, climbed it with my dad, and, and uh, on the way up and on the way back, uh, we would often stop at, at Sing Sing Prison along the way to Hudson River, and, and then at West Point, and I think he was trying to show me all the options. <laughs> He was, uh, he was a dentist. He was a consummate dentist. He was excellent, fabulous craftsman. And he was a teacher. He was a professor of dentistry, and I'm sure that he was a great teacher. But he never really transferred those skills from dentistry to what he liked to call home maintenance. Home maintenance, of course, was fixing things up around the house. But I learned from him. I learned how to get into impossible, you know, awkward positions with a screwdriver or a hammer. And you get it done by saying, son of a bitch, damn it. And the project would get done. But as the years rolled on, I always had this thing in the back of my head. I never resolved this problem with my father. I never was able to apologize. And that, in the end, ultimately, he died and I was a shag nasty kid. I couldn't redeem myself. And then I got older and I had my own child and grandchildren, and I began to understand what unconditional love was, and I began to understand the difference between acting like a shag nasty kid and, and being something else. I mean, kids are pissy, let's face it, and teenagers are the same way, and, and, and that doesn't mean that's who they are. And I realized that I can love, I can love a kid even if he is being a pain in the ass, but I couldn't really get that into my own heart. I couldn't understand that for my own self. 
one of the things I came away with was you don't turn out the lights at night. You don't let the sun go down at the end of the day without taking care of the crap that has befallen you. Disagreements, arguments with your, your wife, your husband, your lover, your parents, your children, your siblings, neighbors, friends. Got to take care of it now. At least you have to try. Because tomorrow never comes. And the other thing, I've sort of been thinking about a lot, particularly these last few weeks, is what was it? What was it that got me up out of that chair, that urge to put down that glass of tea and say, I got to go. I got to go. I didn't know where I was going. But it was right about then that my father was dying. And I believe that he was calling to me. I believe he was saying, Frank, it's cool, man. It's okay. Come home. Come home. Be with me. It's no problem. Everything is forgiven. I got there, but I was too late, and I was 18, and I didn't understand that stuff. I get it get it now. And so all I can say is, Dad, I get it. You can rest in peace. 